every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian High. Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, and I appreciate you tuning us in here on the America Out Loud Network. What a crazy, challenging time, right? And I don't just mean in terms of, uh, you know, trying to, to keep track of, you know, which way is up and which way is down. But, uh, you know, when it comes down to, like, uh, just for instance, heard from a friend yesterday, says, hey, man, I went to lunch. And by the time I got back from lunch, the price of gas had gone up 20 cents. I don't know, man. I get the impression that we are on the uh, we're on the edge of some pretty big shifts, and that may sound very ominous, perhaps even a little apocalyptic. You know that, oh man, it's it's all coming apart like a soup sandwich. But I I think this is part of a historical cycle that we see playing out in front of us. And the crazy thing is, with all the different interpretations and theories about what's going on uh, right now, you know, the thing that's dominating the news cycle, of course, is the war in Ukraine. So how do you know which which sources can I trust? Because when I look at, uh, at most of the media, whether it be, you know, European media, whether it be American media, even so-called conservative media, there there's a whole lot of drum beating and a whole lot of... Uh, I guess they're asking for an investment of your emotion more so than an investment of your actual critical thought, your rationale, uh, your, your, your thinking and reasoning as to why are things this way. So when I say, yeah, it's a, it's a dangerous and strange time, that's primarily what I'm referring to. And with all those different interpretations and theories, you know, I, I like to keep my eye out. I like to keep an ear to the ground of, as, to, as far as who is a reliable source. I'm going to share a couple of them with you and, you know, whether you make them resources, you know, in your uh, ongoing quest for clarity and all that's happening around us, that's entirely up to you. But I got to take a moment here and tip my hat to uh, Thomas Luongo for his take on the matter, particularly his take on the war in Ukraine. In fact, uh, let's let's take a closer look here. And, you know, you might want to grab some tinfoil. There may be some moments here where you'll need that tinfoil hat, but... Tom Luongo says, thanks to Putin's war in Ukraine, the race is on for the Great Reset. And it's been astonishing. You know, people who talked about the Great Reset were, wow, it's just that's conspiracy theory. In fact, most of the things that the conspiracy theorists have been saying for the last couple of years, now it turns out are true. So maybe these theorists were just a little bit ahead of their time. Maybe they were conspiracy realists and the rest of us are, uh, you know, conspiracy deniers. I don't know. 
But the Great Reset has definitely come onto the stage. And it's not like this is a shadowy, super secret, you know, nobody says a word about this, uh, this design to take over and reshape the world economically, culturally, politically by the uh, Davos crowd. Because they've been very open. They've, they've actually been very um, out, you know, in the open with, with what their plans are. And it's funny to see some of the clips that have, have surfaced of Klaus Schwab, among others, just in the last few years, talking about how proud we are that we've been able to, to uh, place in government cabinets and in government positions young, vetted members of the World Economic Forum. Hey, and by the way, it's people like, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, Justin Trudeau. Let's see who else there was another oh uh Medyev, the the uh not not Medyev. anyway the the president of ukraine sorry his name escapes me here for the moment but isn't that odd wow just where they were needed these there were there's where there's conflict in other words where there's people pushing back and and, and demanding their liberty that's uh, that's where suddenly we find you know oh there's real conflict kicking off kicking off here So here's what Tom Luongo has to say about uh, the race on for the Great Reset. He says, Vladimir Putin has become the pivotal figure of the 21st century. Of that, there is no doubt. The size and breadth of the ground operation in Ukraine, despite some mistakes, has been impressive. Now, Luongo says, before I go any further, I want to make sure that we're clear. While the situation seems to be moving decidedly in Russia's favor, I'm willing to remain reasonably skeptical of all the reports I've seen so far. The slowdown in the information flow over the past few days has been as impressive as the stated gains of the Russian military in Ukraine over that same time frame. And he says, since what I've been seeing is repetition and and amplification of the same maps and sources... Nothing should be taken for granted about the outcomes in Ukraine for Putin and Russia. Now, that said, he says, let's not get carried away in thinking the Ukrainian army is putting up much of a fight here, because they're not. Bill Roggio's article from the Times of London somehow made it through the media blackout on nearly all things moderately Russia positive and lays things out for the normies in the audience. Here's a quote from that article. Sympathy for the outnumbered and outgunned defenders of Kiev has led to the exaggeration of Russian setbacks, misunderstanding of a Russian strategy, and even baseless claims from amateur psychoanalysts that Putin has lost his mind. A more sober analysis shows that Russia may have sought a knockout blow, but always had well-laid plans for follow-on assaults if its initial moves proved insufficient. Now, he says the world has underestimated Putin before, and those mistakes have led in part to this tragedy in Ukraine. Again, this is from Bill Roggio's article in the Times of London. So Thomas Luongo says, well, what's obvious to me is that Putin put in motion a plan far more ambitious than was originally expected by the West. And he says, their hysterical overreaction to this decapitation of Ukraine is my barometer on this. Because of this hysteria, there are now all manner of questions as to why Putin did this and why, in effect, he allowed the West to respond to the war, to this war, in this way, thus generating some quite fanciful theories. In fact, he says the rabbit holes are getting dug nearly as quickly as Russia's armed forces have taken the northern coast of the Black Sea. But he says, I feel like all of them have a nugget of truth. But they all lead to the same fundamental conclusion in in his mind. And he says, this has become a race between two radically different versions of the Davos crowd's plans for a great reset. 
And he says, what happens in Ukraine over the next few days or weeks will determine which path to the future we wind up on. So one of the big questions out there is the following. Why would Putin launch such a massive campaign if he knew the response would be so strong from the West? Is it because he's really a secret World Economic Forum stooge who's accelerating their plans for them by sacrificing Ukraine on the altar of their brave new world? No, Tom Luongo says, in short, no. This is clearly a theory akin to the whole Q-tard 4D chess crowd who lap up CIA MI6 information, disinformation rather, to feed their growing solipsistic fugues. He says it's just dumb. Davos et al., are openly honest in their hatred of Putin. He stood athwart their plans for more than two decades now. There are factions who hated him less before troops crossed into Ukraine, but now all of them have their marching orders. Putin must be destroyed and Milosevic'd. So the better way to frame that question would be to make the argument that Putin was their unwitting dupe here goaded into a war he didn't want to give them the excuse to control the, or to continue the Great Reset by pivoting off the failure of COVID-19 and onto him. They could then manipulate market disruptions to their preferred ends. He says, this is where people like Martin Armstrong have landed this week. And he says, I don't begrudge anyone that conclusion. It's at least closer to the truth in my read. He says, I believe they've gotten Davis's motivation correct But he says, I don't think they have Putin's correct. Because it implies that Putin did not game plan this thing. And he says, that thing, that I think is also wrong. Even Bill Roggio begrudgingly admits this. In fact, he says, I would think Davos going financial DEFCON 5 would have been number one on his list of potential reactions from his adversaries. Because that's the way they've reacted in the past to major challenges to their plans. In other words, the election of Trump and Brexit. And he says, it would be dumb of you to think Putin so thick. Do you really think he wasn't paying attention over the past six years? That he slept through the clear operation to take out Trump through election fraud and societal upheaval in the U.S. in 2020? The four years of libs lighting their hair on fire over every word that came out of his mouth. The sham impeachment process of 2019 over a phone call to Ukraine. Of course not. Tom Luongo says Putin and his staff are completely dialed in because the survival of their country demands it. They know better than the people making up these theories who exactly they are dealing with. And he says, for that reason, the scenario that makes the most sense to me here is what I've been suggesting in my last few posts, which, by the way, he thoughtfully links in the article. There are three of them that you can check out. Which brings us to the question, whose cauldron is it anyway? Tom Luongo says Putin is upping the operational tempo on the neo-libs of the Davos crowd in Europe and the White House and their neocon useful idiots in the U.S.-U.K. foreign policy circles, Congress and intelligence services as well, to create the ultimate geopolitical Russian cauldron for their avarice. And Ukraine represents everyone's existential threat. Here's why. If the neocons lose, they're done as an influence within foreign policy circles in the West forever because they will have failed to penetrate Fortress Russia. If Davos loses, their grand plans for global domination become diminished to, at best, the European Union and some parts of the Commonwealth. If Russia loses, the entire global south, as Pepe Escobar calls it, fails to escape the fiat, debt-based slavery of the Western Central Banking Cartel. 
because they will control the flow of Russian natural resources in such a way that they will not be stopped. More on that later. So he says, if you're wondering why everything about this war feels weird or off, it's because the stakes are so high for everyone. These are the stakes for the world. And it's because of that you had to expect the quality of information surrounding it uh, has literally dropped to the international price of Russian sovereign debt. In other words, zero. So he says, don't let Putin's goal of, or Putin's focus rather, on finishing off Ukraine militarily blind you to thinking that this is his true end goal. This is, as Thomas Luongo said the other day, an opening salvo. Now we've already seen that there is no appetite within NATO which means both the U.S. military and EU politicians, to go into a direct fight with Russia. And that probably means there's no appetite for nuclear war. Now, that doesn't mean nuclear war is a zero-probability event. It just means there's no current appetite for it. And the reason for that is the belief that there's a way to stop Putin in Ukraine that still exists within the minds of both the neocons at the State Department and Davos. Now, that belief hinges on binding Putin in a land war in Ukraine that he can't win against an insurgency of the type and kind Whitney Webb just exposed that the CIA has been building around the globe, including here in the U.S., for years now. So this has now become official U.S. policy, setting up a Ukrainian government in exile in Poland while sending money there to support an al-Qaeda-like guerrilla army to harass the Russians. And this makes sense since this is what we did in Syria, using Turkey as the staging ground for their assaults into Idlib and Aleppo. He says this is likely the reason why Putin has been so adamant about denazifying Ukraine and speaking in absolute terms about their not receiving protections under the Geneva Convention. Many of them are, in fact, foreign-backed actors, at least according to his intelligence. So regardless of the fact that exterminating these men would be war crimes legally, Putin, with his Ph.D. in international law, either doesn't care or feels if he wins the war, he'll be able to make his case in any post-war tribunal. Now, you can see the attempts to paint Putin as reckless everywhere. The events at the uh, rather nuclear power plant, they were reported to put all the blame on Russia, while the silenced Russian information sources, including the Ministry of Defense, told a different story. Tom Luongo says, hey, I'm happy to bracket between the two in order to suss out the truth. But he says the longer the official war can be prolonged in Ukraine, the more time the Davos-backed insurgency gets to form up while resupplying Ukraine's west. And it could also be why Putin has to up the operational tempo in Ukraine soon, or he and his army could be in big trouble. Next comes the race up oil mountain. And this is the part I found most fascinating. Tom Luongo says, so the race to the end of the ground war is here. And with that shift, it's time to back off the battlefield and look at the capital markets to see what they are seeing. Because there is no military response coming from NATO other than guerrillas. Now, the capital markets are supposed to be Davos's turf. Well, Russia is financially weak. But that's only if you look at things in nominal terms, nominal dollars, euros, etc. Russia has weapons it has only just begun to deploy here. So Act 2 has to be the financial war because the guerrilla insurgency strategy only works if the governments in NATO's pivotal countries don't collapse. This is why Putin will have to make a move financially within the next few weeks. 
Now, two minor moves have already been made. First is the removal of the value-added tax on purchasing gold for Russian citizens. The second he announced yesterday, avoiding default on foreign-held Russian debt by offering bond payments in rubles to bondholders. Now, these are, minor new, these are minor moves, but they simply signal to the world that Russia has the intentions to make good on its promises and not punish those who are bystanders in this war between governments. In fact, Luongo says, if I know Putin well, he will wait for his next big move so as to cause maximal damage in the financial markets, and that means waiting to see how the central banks and capital markets respond to the big changes occurring within them right now. In fact, he alluded to one of these moves the other day, saying that those that brave the waters, meaning Shell at negative 28.50 to Brent, will get their Russian oil at a steep discount. Those that don't will pay through the nose, further accelerating the decline of those economies as inflation spirals out of control and the people put the blame not on Putin, but on the people in charge. Moreover, he wrote, Russia has kept the gas flowing to ensure that money keeps flowing into the country to finance further expansion of its gold reserves. And that's the key. Gold. Russia has oil it pulls out of the ground for less than $10 per barrel. If Biden decides to to excise Russian energy from U.S. markets, and talking with Maduro in Venezuela is a clear signal here, then Davos is pushing for this to further isolate Russian energy. Now, remember remember the JCPOA was supposed to be signed this week to get Iran's oil back into the market. But Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov put a monkey wrench in that. But it's simply Iran's model of resistance to U.S. sanctions that is Russia's model for the future. Simply put, sell oil for gold. I'm sorry, sell gold for oil. During the pre-JCPOA period, Iran did this with buyers depositing the gold in Turkish banks. Iran kept the oil flowing. Third-party oil trades through Hong Kong, maybe, could also get around any sanctions for Russia and allow them to sell oil while making China a mint in transaction fees. But he says the big move for Putin is quite simple, which is to offer up its oil at a steep discount to the futures price, but only in gold, physical gold. The current gold to oil ratio is roughly seven barrels, I'm sorry, 17 barrels per ounce. So Tom Luongo says all that Putin has to do to begin a global run on physical gold. That's what he needs to do. Oil is the M0 of global trade. It is the trade on which all the West's financialization power is built upon. And that foundation is built on the petrodollar. By, tying, by directly tying Russia's marginal barrel produced to the price of gold far below market prices, we'll end up doing two things. First, it creates a massive arbitrage opportunity for gold and oil that the market will fill. Second, it follows, it, col- it collapses the valuations of all assets priced in paper gold to the price of physical. So either the price of everything collapses to maintain the fiction of $2,000 gold or... The price of gold rises to meet the new price. Now, this forces the West to come clean on just how much gold it actually has, creates a massive short-term run on physical gold, and forces a repricing of everyone's balance sheet. And he says that, my friends, is the big weapon that Putin is holding in reserve. He can afford to sell his oil at a steeply discounted price. I'm thinking 50 barrels per ounce should do it. He forces the world to reprice oil in terms of gold and then, by extension, rubles rather than the dollar. 
This creates positive gold inflow into Russia to create a two-tiered ruble, the long-held dream of Sergei Glazyev, a domestic gold-backed ruble, and a global one circulating, which floats. So the key to understanding whether things are primed for this, he says, is looking not at Europe, but rather at Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm going to confess, I do not fluently understand everything that he just described here. There are bits and pieces of it that I understand, but this is a good starting point. This makes me want to pull the thread a little bit further and see what else unravels and see just where this leads. But I do believe that the financial aspect of this really is the prize. And and if that sounds too conspiratorial, then I don't know what to tell you other than I think bankers seem to have their interests when conflict breaks out. And and I think it's very telling that uh, banks will oftentimes end up financing both sides of a conflict and emerge the clear winner, regardless of, of who comes out on top when the battle has ended. I mean, it's hard to lose when you're the one controlling the money. So I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. It's uh, Tom Luongo. Maybe you want to subscribe to his Gold Goats and Guns blog. The man's got some some very good insights, and I'm not uh, trying to suggest that, oh, he's the only one who sees clearly what's going on, but I would definitely encourage you to use him as one of your resources to, to better understand what's happening around us. That's Thomas Luongo, L-U-O-N-G-O. So quick, uh, just a real quick message here. I just want to touch on this real fast. I think a lot of the confusion that people have had over the last couple of years about when is it okay to stand up for your rights? And by the way, Putin is the one who's been taking your rights. I'm I'm not trying to to excuse him for any wrongdoing he's done. But uh, you have an enemy that's much closer to home who has been working ruthlessly to separate you from your God-given rights. I want to just give you a couple excerpts from a writer by the name of Alexander Salter. Reasons for Rights, Liberty, and the Good Life. This this is just the, the brief outline he puts forward. He says, Natural rights are the foundation of a just government. Life, liberty, and property are non-negotiable. The pursuit of happiness, meaning a life well-lived, not just satisfaction or pleasure, depends on government respecting man's rights. But where do these rights come from? He says, the Declaration of Independence asserts that all men are endowed by their creator with rights. The founders had no problem in believing in a divine sanction for each person's moral entitlements. To them, respecting natural rights meant honoring God, the source of human dignity. And he says, we have a duty to protect rights because we have a duty to obey God. However, natural rights are not a specifically religious concept. In fact, even those who don't believe in God understand the natural equality of men before the law, also proclaimed in the Declaration. Now, because human beings are, or human persons are moral equals, we must regard our fellows as ends in themselves. And what that means is when we trample on the rights of others, we subordinate them to our own ends, reducing them to mere means. Alexander Selter says it's wrong to treat people like tools. A human being is not an instrument to be manipulated by his presumed betters. Each personhood means equal dignity, which establishes rights as a universal principle. Now, he says natural rights deserve protection for reasons other than duty. Results matter, too. For example, societies that value life, liberty, and property are wealthier, healthier, and more socially equal than societies that don't. 
a rights-respecting society is a free society in which human ingenuity can best solve important social problems. But he says creativity requires freedom because creativity can't function under coercion. From here, he goes into a great description of the free market and why it is the best way to solve problems. This is the conclusion he comes to. Duty, consequences, and virtue point to a common truth, and that is natural rights are woven into the fabric of reality. Any political philosophy that denies man's inalienable rights is un-American and inhuman. Alexander Salter says, true justice requires life, liberty, and property. Just remember, it's a natural right if it limits government's power over you. This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde on the America Out Loud Network. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed ourselves. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. The spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation, that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com, where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's time to rethink COVID disinfection. A study by Harvard, Drexel, and Virginia Tech concluded we don't have a single documented case of COVID transmission through surfaces. The reality is that COVID spreads mainly through the air. Shared air is the problem, not shared surfaces. The solution is the Genesis Fogger, which uses natural HOCL to disinfect both air and surfaces simultaneously. It's perfect for home or business. NIH says HOCL may well be the disinfectant of choice for coronaviruses. There's nothing more natural or more effective. Genesis fogs at the precise particle size to combat COVID and other harmful pathogens. It's what's missing from your disinfecting protocol. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network. 
All right. We're going to spend a little bit of time following up on, uh, well, we're, we're going to talk about the post-COVID world. Now that we have been effortlessly led from one crisis into a new crisis, uh, you know, sadly, uh, people don't understand the real crisis isn't COVID. The real crisis isn't war in Ukraine. The real crisis that we're facing right now is that we are a people who can be so easily led into the next sense of anxiety or crisis or, or fear. This is how uh, those in power maintain their power and their influence over us. I wanted to start with, uh, let's, let's take a little bit closer look at uh, the words safe and effective as they apply to vaccines. Dr. Brian C. Jundef wonders whatever happened to the claim that vaccines are safe and effective. This is what he has to say in an article published on AmericanThinker.com. Dr. Jundef says, COVID vaccines were developed in record time, one might say at warp speed. That's the name of the operation instituted by President Trump in 2020. We were assured by those in whom we place trust that these vaccines were safe and effective. In August 2021, President Biden told us, after a strict process, the FDA has reaffirmed its findings that the the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective, and the FDA has given its full and final approval. Now, the CDC said the same and confirmed just days ago, COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective. Dr. Anthony Fauci received his first dose of Moderna vaccine a few days before Christmas in 2020, the same time I received my first dose of the same vaccine. Again, this is the doctor who's talking here. And according to ABC News, the event was shown live on television as part of an effort to reassure Americans that the vaccine was safe and effective. Dr. Fauci felt extreme confidence in the vaccine science and wanted to get vaccinated publicly as a symbolic gesture for the rest of the country. Major medical institutions such as Johns Hopkins University echoed Dr. Fauci and the CDC saying the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are strongly recommended as safe and effective at preventing serious illness or death from COVID-19. So how are vaccines developed? Well, the College of Physicians of Philadelphia explains vaccine development is a long, complex process, often lasting 10 to 15 years and involving a combination of public and private involvement. Johns Hopkins agrees a typical vaccine development timeline takes 5 to 10 years and sometimes longer to assess whether the vaccine is safe and efficacious in clinical trials, complete the regulatory approval processes, and manufacture sufficient quantity of vaccine doses for widespread distribution. So normally it's a stepwise process. Each clinical trial phase follows completion of the prior phase. It can take a long time to accumulate cases to assess vaccine efficacy outside pandemic. Manufacturing capability is scaled up after phase three trial and regulatory approval, but this may be accelerated during a pandemic. So some clinical trial phases are combined. Cases accumulate rapidly to assess vaccine efficacy because of the pandemic. And manufacturing capability is, or capacity rather, is scaled up during the clinical trials, but at financial risk. Now, in this case, Dr. Brian Jundef says, Well, for COVID, this process was definitely accelerated. He says it was in March 2020 that COVID went from an interesting news item to a battering ram pounding the entire world. 
And just nine months later, not five to ten years later, he says Dr. Fauci, myself, and many others received their first vaccine doses. Now he says the mission of the FDA is to protect public health by ensuring the safety, efficacy, and security of human and veterinary drugs, biological products, and medical devices. And vaccines certainly fall into this category. Many bemoan the process when it's slow, but how do patient how often do patients suffering from currently untreatable or inadequately treatable diseases wish the approval process was faster, hoping they don't die waiting for the next wonder drug to be approved? And Dr. June Dr. Uh, uh, June Def says, you know, how do, how do you know? How has this played out with the, the COVID vaccines? He says, now I have to add the standard and necessary disclaimer. I'm not anti-vaccine, having been personally fully vaccinated, nor am I offering medical advice, just an analysis of where we are with COVID vaccines now two years into this current pandemic. He says, any vaccine decision should be between you and your physician based on a thoughtful analysis of risks and benefit, as is standard for any medical intervention. Several reports are worthy of analysis regarding the safe and effective assertions made by regulatory authorities and leaders. So start with safety. Last week, as reported by Yahoo Finance, the FDA released under orders from a U.S. district judge 55,000 pages of clinical trial documents which Pfizer submitted to the FDA as part of the approval process. Now, originally, the FDA had wanted to suppress this data for 75 years as they had limited resources to prepare this data for release. Yet they took approximately 75 days to review and analyze the same data before granting approval. In the appendix is a list of adverse events of special interest, noting 1,291 different adverse events post-vaccination, running nine pages. Now, there's always the issue of association versus causation, but the fact that Pfizer submitted this data to the FDA and the FDA fought to prevent its release raises some red flags. Aside from the FDA submission, there is the VAERS database that specifically tracks vaccine-related adverse effects. As Yahoo Finance reported, quote, from mid-December 2020 through February 18, 2022, the U.S. government's database, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, has received 1,134,984 reports of adverse events, including 24,402 deaths following COVID vaccination. Additionally, there have been 4,021 cases of myocarditis and pericarditis in the U.S. with 2,475 cases associated with Pfizer, 1,364 cases with Moderna, and 171 cases with J&J's COVID vaccine. These include 643 reports of myocarditis and pericarditis in children ages 12 to 17. Now, the U.S. Department of, of Defense also noted sharp spikes in miscarriages, myocarditis, cancer diagnoses, Bell palsies, Bell's palsy, rather, uh, female infertility, post-vaccination. But this is deemed unnewsworthy. And the media's so-called fact-checkers are always trying to add context rather than encourage further analysis and discussion. Then there's the matter of efficacy. British independent news site The Exposé reported last week the latest deaths published by the UK Health Security Agency confirms deaths are rising dramatically among the triple vaccinated population while declining steadily 
among the non-vaccinated population in England. With the most recent figures showing the fully vaccinated accounted for 9 in every 10 COVID deaths over the past month, and the triple vaccinated accounted for 4 in every 5 of them. So the data are from an official government website, which reports 70% of individuals in England receiving at least one vaccine dose, 65% getting two doses, and 50% boosted, meaning three doses. They also found vaccine effectiveness for the AstraZeneca vaccine dropping to almost no effect from 20 weeks after the second dose. For Pfizer and Moderna, the effectiveness dropped to around 10% by 25 weeks after the second dose. Now, they note that booster efficiency also, or efficacy rather, also very quickly wanes. Vaccine effectiveness estimates for the booster dose are very similar, irrespective of the primary course received. Now, this is just one bit of data. And as the UK government points out, this raw data should not be used to estimate vaccine effectiveness. But it's also noteworthy as are similar reports from other countries. NPR reported last summer, highly vaccinated Israel is seeing a dramatic surge in new COVID cases. So this report raises questions of both safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccines. And this doesn't require a knee-jerk response of no vaccines for anyone or the opposite of how dare you question the vaccines. Instead, why not a middle ground of asking questions, analyzing and honestly reporting the data? Now, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky admitted last week that the CDC dropped the ball on honesty, saying the CDC misled the public about long-term effectiveness with too little caution and too much optimism. She went further. No one said waning when this vaccine is going to work. Oh, maybe it'll wear off or not be as potent against the new variant. Now, by necessity... Dr. Jundef says, we as a society need to have a basic level of trust in our medical and government institutions, regulatory or leadership. We're told one thing repeatedly and threatened, shamed or chastised if we ask questions or challenge the narrative. Then when news or data are released that contradicts the narrative, trust in our institutions diminishes. And we've seen this numerous times with COVID over subjects like natural immunity, Off-label therapeutics, lockdowns, mask mandates, and social distancing, where discussion or disagreement is simply not allowed. Going further, many political issues became verboten to question or discuss, including Trump-Russia collusion, Hunter Biden's laptop, election integrity, and so on. Those who dared question the establishment narrative were banned from social media and polite society. Businesses and lives were ruined by COVID and the resulting restrictions and mandates. Dr. Jundef says, given the world's collective sacrifice, aren't we entitled to the honesty and transparency, transparency rather from those who created these rules and who hold the fates of so many individuals in their hands? Or has everything about COVID been simply a means to an end, replacing freedom and liberty with top-down control? I got to admit, I saw from, from the very beginning of this pandemic that it was providing an opportunity for the consolidation of power in fewer and fewer hands. But I did not want to believe that uh, this is really what was about. I thought, you know, they're probably acting on the best information they have, but they're overreacting just out of an abundance of caution. Well, here we are two years later. I mean, the lockdowns went into play just about two years ago, and it appears that no, 
It wasn't just an honest mistake. It wasn't just, well, you know, we all uh, thought we knew what we were doing. It, uh, it's, it was deliberate. In fact, I want, I want to segue into the next article here. Because uh, at the risk of sounding like I'm bloodthirsty or I'm just, you know, thirsting for vengeance, I do believe the people who pushed for lockdowns and other denials of personal autonomy, the ones who enforced those policies, I, I see that they're in full damage control right now. And my big concern is that people are going to forget. They're going to be so hopped up on anti-Russia, anti-Putin sentiment, the Putin sentiment that they don't, uh, you know, have the the memory or the the connection of who really has been trying to separate them from their freedom and well-being for the last couple of years. Here's a hint: it wasn't the Russians. I see a great piece from Kit Knightley published on OffGuardian.org. And it just counsels, don't believe the media's fake postmortem. The pandemic was not a mistake. And the story that we're being given is that the COVID hysteria was the result of flawed data or, or panic, but it was neither. Here's why. Kit Knightley says, as the mainstream media power down the pandemic narrative and engage war mode, there's still time for one last autopsy. The media's postmortem of the pandemic itself. And in a beautifully fitting piece of poetic irony, COVID's autopsy will be inaccurate and fitted to a foregone conclusion. So, for instance, this week has seen the UK's Sage Group discontinuing their regular monthly meetings while admitting their predictions were at variance with reality. Have you ever heard a more polite way to say, we were wrong, or we misled you, or we lied? Oh, well, it's not a matter of uh, us being wrong. It's just that our answers were at variance with reality. Yeah, that's, that is some weasel-worded sophistry, if there ever was sophistry. Kit Knightley says the media are, call, are discussing the bad data, which was used to build the Imperial College models that called for a lockdown. In fact, a Telegraph article quotes Professor Mark Woolhouse who claims in his recent book that lockdowns had surprisingly little effect and that anyone who supported lockdown on the basis of the half-million figure was misled. But he still lays the blame at the feet of incompetence, never malice. And Kit Knightley says this is all still part of the story. The post-event navel-gazing, where have we seen it before? Remember when they said 9-11 was the result of a failure of imagination or the Iraq war was supposedly the result of bad intelligence? Both outright provable lies, a protective rear guard for the establishment narrative. Agonizing over mistakes, promising to do better next time, that's all still part of the theater. Buttressing the fake story against a more brutal reality, which is that COVID, as it was sold to us, never really existed. The panic was not, the pandemic rather, was not organic. Lockdowns were not the result of panic. Now, Kit Knightley says, look, we've all read the facts. The data was fudged. The tests were useless. The statistics artificially inflated. And many deaths were intentionally caused through institutionalized medical negligence. Hospitals received funding bonuses as as payoffs. And just as an aside here, I don't know if you'd heard this, but U.S. media took a nice $1 billion payment from the Biden White House to go out there and pimp vaccines I guess everybody has their price right 
The bottom line, though, according to Kit Knightley, is that none of that had anything to do with bad data or even pessimistic models. Kit Knightley says they did it all on purpose. All of it. Every life lost, every business destroyed, every penny wasted, every child traumatized, every moment of anxiety and fear, every single one entirely intentional. They ruined lives and countries and the global economy as a deliberate policy on the back of a vast web of lies. And the last act of the deception will be to claim that it was a mistake. Meanwhile, the same agenda that masked itself behind this mistake, mass poverty, food and energy shortages, censorship and social control, is creeping, is creeping ever closer in a new guy's war. It's all the same. No matter what they're saying, no matter what they're pretending to care about, whatever they actually want never changes. Kit Knightley says COVID cost every single one of us something. Safety, money, trust, health, friends, family, but it gave us something too. It gave us a peek behind the curtain. In their ambition, the establishment exposed their true face. They think if they stop talking about the Great Reset, the new normal, or building back better for a few months, we'll forget. But we won't. They told us clearly who they were and what they intended, and now they're going to pretend that they didn't mean it. Kit Knightley says, don't believe it. Not for a second. I get it. That may sound like, well, you're being a little bit harsh on these guys, but just remember, these are the people who are the people who are, are telling you right now that you're a bad person if you're not chanting in unison and waving the Ukrainian flag are the very same people who are chanting about how the unvaccinated needed to lose their jobs. Job or jab, you know, you either do it or else. They were the Karens who would stop and accost you as you were shopping. They're the ones who would try to get your kids vaccinated, even against your will. Hey, can we bribe you? Can we bribe you? No, then how about we threaten you? Like I say, I don't want to sound like I'm being petty, and and maybe this is just me trying to justify pettiness. I hope not. But if we're serious about preventing this from happening again, these people who pushed these policies, and yes, even the people who enforced these policies, need to be hauled into court, held accountable for what they did, the actual harm done. And they need to be held criminally and maybe even civilly liable until they have at least done something to try to make good the harm that they've done. And at the very least, they need to be separated from ever holding authority, not so much as being a dog catcher, because they've shown they cannot be trusted with power. I know. Man, you sound like you are really upset at these people. I'm more upset at what they did. Why they did it doesn't matter as much to me as the fact that they did it. And it wasn't because, well, we had no alternative. We just had to do this. It's because they chose to see no other alternative. I don't mean to be super harsh on the people who enforced it. I mean, come on, I was just doing my job. Sorry, man, that didn't fly at Nuremberg and it shouldn't fly here. And we should be holding Nuremberg-type tribunals. I don't know if, you know, the hanging by the neck is, is necessarily the punishment that fits the crime. But they need to answer. 
and for those who deprive people of their livelihoods, their lives, their freedoms, I think they need to pay a price. I'll let the jury and, you know, the, the justice system decide what that price is. But they ought, they ought not be able to just say, well, it was a mistake. Come on, anybody could have done this. No, the point is, you did it. That's why you need to answer for it. All right, since I'm on a bit of a tear, let's just continue this thing through. I've got some momentum built up. So here's the good news. Mask mandates are dropping fast. Of course, there are some stubborn holdouts. Strangely, you know, kids' schools, there, there are still school districts and cities where, oh, we want to keep the kids in masks. The ones who are at the lowest risk possible of COVID. Everybody else, yeah, you can run around without masks. I still believe that there's, there's far too much of this uh, appearance that uh, all the subservient must wear masks. You, you look at any of the big uh, Hollywood get-togethers, you look at any of the award shows or even the big political gatherings, all the wait staff, all the servants are masked up. And the elite, yeah, they, they don't need that. That's only for little people. So when someone's insisting that you wear a mask, I think you should probably understand. You're being reminded you are one of the little people. If you're traveling by plane, this is where it gets tricky. How can you assert your desire not to wear a mask and still be able to travel? If there's a way to do it, I don't know what it is. I'll talk more about uh, some of the the workarounds that I've seen. But I got an article here from Scott Moorfield, Moorfield rather, published by the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org. This is a remarkable resource for all the things having to do with COVID and lockdowns and and who did what. Scott Moorfield asks, will the mask mandate for plane travel ever end? He says, like those horses on Yellowstone that just refuse to be ridden, I'd like to think that I never, ever broke to the habit of mask wearing. It's always awful. It's always uncomfortable. Every moment I'm forced to wear one of those contraptions is a moment of completely unnecessary suffering enforced by power-hungry, hypochondriac tyrants whose main primary goal is to make people miserable for as long as possible. Now, sure, he says adults and even children get accustomed to masks over time, but those who make that argument should remember that, what, that prisoners also eventually get institutionalized. And he says, I never got used to mask wearing, and I wear that fact like a badge of honor. Now, in this case, Scott Moorfield says, look, unlike many others, I was fortunate enough to be in a state where I could largely ignore the toothless mask mandate in my county. Businesses rarely, if ever, raised a peep at the few maskless people who entered their doors, even during the height of the pandemic. They wanted people to wear masks, but they wanted the business more, so they didn't turn customers away. But airports, airplanes, trains and train stations, well, that's an entirely different matter. There, peasants like you and I are forced, at proverbial gunpoint, to wear masks for hours on end with little to no reprieve. Now, he says, I've had the misfortune of having to fly several times during this ridiculous era. And each time is a misery all its own. But having to play the Kabuki Theater there when almost the entire rest of the country, including New York City, is living normally, is somehow worse. He says, last week his COVID restrictions faded away in even the bluest of places. For the crime of simply needing to fly to Texas, 
I found myself again forcibly gagged while traversing a bleak, mindless hellscape where time has inexplicably stood still. Compared to the free world, airports and airplanes are like dystopian alternate realities with a forced order that has absolutely zero basis in reality. In it, we masked zombies wander seemingly aimlessly from place to place, barely looking up, clearly agitated and unhappy, yet powerless to remedy the situation, lest we find ourselves on a no-fly list, or worse, in a prison cell. Forcibly muzzling passengers who've already been treated like cattle for decades is the perfect leftist power play, and they're playing it for maximum effect. He says, as the pre-flight recording makes abundantly and obnoxiously clear down to the excruciating detail of what needs to happen after every bite and sip, travelers are expected to be fully masked from above the mouth, or above the nose rather, to below the mouth during every non-eating and drinking second of your existence at these infernal places. And he says, it's torture enough on relatively short, on-time flights, but... God help you if your flight is delayed, or even God won't be able to help you if you're stuck for hours on a tarmac inside a plane that has mechanical issues. Because breathing freely is, after all, secondary to following the rules. Now, Scott Moorfield says, look, traveling is stressful enough without this, and yet this is what our tyrannical overlords impose in the name of safety. They don't care about your comfort, only your obedience. And they know damn well cloth masks aren't worth the t-shirt material it took to manufacture them, and that the recycled air on planes makes them as safe or safer than anywhere else indoors. Yet the federal travel mask mandate is likely to be extended even beyond the supposed March 18th expiration. And he asks why? And the answer is, he says, I submit it's because they can. It's a scientific fact that if these crazed hypochondriac power mongers could control society like they can control those places with the iron fist of the TSA, we'd be in masks forever. Now, they can't, of course, which is why the politics changed enough for them to relax the mandates almost everywhere. But airports and airplanes, he says, are a different animal. There, the security theater practiced for decades fits perfectly with the newer but even more sinister mask theater of the COVID era. If passengers are still forced to remove their shoes because of the clumsy actions of some loser more than 20 years ago, do you think forcibly muzzling people for the next two decades and beyond is an issue for these goal, for these ghouls? Again, this is Scott Moorfield. And I... I Well, I'm not looking for a reason to disagree with him, but even if I was looking, I'd have a hard time disagreeing with what he's saying here. And I would caution you, don't don't get too hung up. Well, the tone of what he's saying, Brian, is really, you know, it's pretty harsh. Might turn some people off. It might. And perhaps there's a better way to say things, but let's not be so distracted by his tone of voice as what is the root of the problem? And the root of the problem is government is acting in ways that are inconsistent with its proper role. Here's the crazy thing, too. There are people who have been able to figure out workarounds for many of these things. For instance, I've only flown once since the pandemic began, and that's largely a you know personal choice. I, I don't try to put myself anywhere where I'm going to be forced to wear a mask. I just don't like it. I'm not down with it. I'm not hip 
with the idea of being masked up. So when I did fly, rather than take, you know, the approved N95, which at the time I think was was the approved mask, I just, I have this uh, nifty little, uh, I, I'll call it a fake mask, but it's it's mesh. It doesn't look like mesh, but it is mesh, and you can actually breathe in it. And uh, that's that's my way of of fighting back against the power in a situation where, look, if you want to make the flight, you got to be wearing a mask, okay? But I'm going to be wearing my mask, and, you know, contrary to uh, what they may want, I'm not going to enjoy it. Ha! I also have a friend who was telling me about an acquaintance that he ran into recently, who, uh, this is before all the travel, pa- or the uh, uh, vaccine passports uh, started to, to drop those mandates. His friend was traveling to areas, and, and I mean, had to fly a lot. So when they would ask him, do you have your uh, vaccine passport? He had something photoshopped. I don't know if it was just a QR code or what, but he would just flash him whatever this was on his phone. And, and the key was the people doing the asking would glance and they, they didn't care. They never checked it. They never verified it. They just waved him on through. Okay. In other words, just the appearance of compliance was enough to get them off his back. So I'm not encouraging you to do anything illegal here. But I'm also not encouraging you to uh, to go along with whatever is being said by those in power. Obedience is not the sign of a good person. Being able to distinguish right from wrong, that's the sign of a good person. You are listening to the Disciples of Liberty show here on the America Out Loud Network.